This is Leewood Online, a ministry of Leewood Baptist Church, located in the Kansas City area. For more information about us, visit us online at www.leewoodbaptist.com. If you want to go ahead and turn to James chapter 5, that's where we're going to be today. Uh, this is actually our last message in our series through the book of James. We've been in here for a while. And uh, I don't know about y'all, but I have taken a lot from it. Um, If you remember, especially from early on, James is writing to a congregation that's facing uh, a lot of issues, right? So early on in chapter 1, we hear about uh, the persecution that they're receiving because of their faith. Later on, we see some of the oppression that they're facing. Is there people that uh, many of them don't have many means? And there's, there's issues within the church with how to deal with things like wealth. Today, we're going to talk about uh, issues like health and wellness and those kind of things and illness that's in the church. So James is writing to a congregation that is facing a lot of trials, going through many difficulties, and um, because they're going through so much, we might think that James would kind of take it easy on them, you know, pat them on the back, give them a few encouraging words, and, and send them on their way. Uh, but we've seen that's not what James does, right? James is very practically minded. James is very application-driven, and so he's not shy to share uh, with this church what they should be doing, what they're not doing well enough, uh, how they can be further following Christ with their lives and their actions according to what we've been taught, and uh, sometimes that steps on some toes, right? So James has has talked about the importance of of being careful with how we speak. Again, he's he's addressed issues like wealth. We've talked about practical things like prayer. Uh, Today, we're going to talk more about that as well, looking at things like wisdom. James has addressed a lot of different issues, and he's going to continue kind of with that theme today. He's going to be telling us about our duty to those in our congregation, our duty to those in the church. So, um, something you may not know about me is, is uh, in my background, my educational background at least, in my undergrad in college, I didn't actually study things uh, pertaining to ministry. I actually got a, a business degree when I was going into college, that was kind of first when I felt like God was kind of moving me in my life towards vocational ministry. And as I started to kind of think about that and pray about that, I wanted to talk to others, uh, get a little bit of wisdom from other godly people I knew and, and hear their thoughts. And one thing that I heard from some people in ministry and a few other people was that um, if I was looking at, at, at ministry, maybe, you know, background in like business or something like that would be helpful. So when I got to college, I looked at the business school and I wanted to find something in that field that I thought would be interesting. And the most interesting thing that I thought I saw was marketing. That sounded like a lot of fun. When I thought about it, I don't know about you, but when I thought about it, I thought of like things like, you know, funny commercials, Super Bowl ads, catchy jingles, those kind of things, that kind of creative kind of stuff. Uh, it didn't take long to realize that is not what a marketing degree is about. Uh, marketing degrees are things like studying consumer behaviors and habits and learning the science behind market research and how to talk about price points as they relate to products and things that just aren't near as interesting sounding. Uh, And I found out pretty quick that a lot of it's very technical. It wasn't very difficult, but it was very technical. It was like studying marketing from like this 30,000 foot view. And as I got on in my degree and, and, you know, I'm getting two and three years into this, I realized I haven't really taken classes in advertising or graphic design or how to build things for websites and I remember uh, I was studying with one of my best friends that was in the program with me, and, and we were both kind of going through this together. And I looked at him one day, and I said, you know, Will, we're like a year from graduating, 
And if somebody took me to a business today and said, you're hired, and they sat me down at a desk and gave me everything I needed and said, all right, go market, wouldn't have the first clue where to begin. But that's kind of something that's kind of common with like education, informal, academic kind of stuff, right? When, when you're in school, a lot of times you're studying, you're studying the 30,000-foot view of things. You're studying the foundational things, how to think about things, how to approach the idea. But when you want to learn what to do, what your job is, that's more the role of on-the-job training, right? It's getting your job description, having somebody with expectations walk you through what they want you to do, and then teaching you how to do those things so that you can fulfill that role. I think that probably a lot of us have had that, that experience with formal education and maybe things in our works, uh, but I'm afraid that's how we approach church a lot of times, too. Like, church is a place where we've come to learn about how to talk about God, how to think about God, how to interact with others and those kind of conversations. Um, but I think very often we come to church and we don't think about that other side of it. What's, what's my job here? What's my job description here? And when I ask that question, I'm not really asking what your job is uh, as it relates to maybe a title. I'm not asking if you're, you're a deacon or a Sunday school teacher, as, as great as all those things are. I'm asking the fundamental question of what does God expect from believers in his churches as it relates to relationally other believers? What if I put the same experiment before you that I asked a second ago? If, if we brought everybody in here like on a Tuesday night, and every one of you were sitting in the same pew that you're in right now, seeing the same people around you, and instead of, you know, doing our normal church services, we just said, oh, good, everybody's here. Now that you're all here, go church. Go do your duty as a church member to those in the pews around you. What's the first thing you would do? When you think about that responsibility... If you got that charge, what's the first thing you would do? I'm afraid for many of us, that's a harder question than it would seem like it would be on the surface. Luckily, we're going through James, and James is a very practically-minded guy, and James gives us at least a couple of things that will feed into that job description. He may not give us something exhaustive right here, but in this passage we're going to see that James tells us we have at least two duties to those in our congregation, and one is that we should be actively praying for them and entering their lives to handle some of the things that they're struggling with, and second is we're to be helping keep them accountable in the faith. So as we kind of go through this passage, um, I'll go ahead and warn you that that the main points there, that praying and keeping each other accountable are pretty clear, and we'll see that. But there's also some, some kind of complicated stuff in this passage. We're going to be talking about things that seem kind of strange, like anointing with oil or, or our duty to save the soul of, of those who are, are among us and what exactly all that means. So uh, just kind of hang with me as we go through this. We're going to be hitting the main gist of the, the sections and the passages, and we might have to backtrack to get some of those details. So as we jump around... Uh, Just try to follow along with me in the text. That's going to be our best guide. So we're going to read from James chapter 5, starting in verse 13. We're going to stop about halfway through verse 16. Follow along with me as I read. It says, Is anyone among you suffering? He should pray. Is anyone among you cheerful? He should sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? He should call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick person, and the Lord will raise him up. If he has committed any sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. And let's pause right there. So the main gist of this passage, the main gist of this section that we just read is what? Pray. 
Again, we're talking about James writing to a congregation that's faced troubles of, of all sorts, right? Persecution, oppression, illness, you name it. These people are going through it. And James says, whatever situation you're in, pray. He says, are, are you suffering? You should pray. Are, are you cheerful? Sing praises back to God. Sing prayers of, of adoration back to your Father. If, if, other thing, if you're ill, be praying about that with the elders. He basically tells us that we should be praying in good times, bad times, sick times, celebratory times. He says in this passage that we should be praying about things like sin. We should be praying about things like health. We should be praying about sin and health of others in our congregation uh, for short-term things, long-term things. Uh, there really is not a limit to what James is telling us we should be praying for, right? I mean, it's, it's applied to every situation. He's talking to a people who are dealing with, with things flying at them from every direction, and he's saying in every situation, in every circumstances, that should be covered with prayer, good and bad. But I want us to also notice something else here. Let's look at the audience of who he's talking about when he's talking about pray. So first off, he says, is anyone suffering? Pray, All right? If, if there's things going on in your own life, if, if you're facing trials of any kind, that's something to bring before God, to lay at his feet, to give over to him, to admit to him that we're struggling with it. I don't think that's probably a shocking application of, of how to look at prayer, right? I think that's something that most of us think about. But he goes on and he expands it and he starts talking about praying with the elders. And that may be a little bit of a kind of strange thing to us. So when we see the word elder in the New Testament, we know we're, we're basically talking about pastors, right? those that God has established in his churches to shepherd over the souls of others uh, in the congregation, right? That's, that's what we see in the New Testament when it's talking about that. Um, we know that you know, we've kind of seen this set up all the way throughout the New Testament. We see it early on in Acts as God is setting up his church in Jerusalem, as he's, he's giving roles to people and, and things like deacons and other things are being divided out. The disciples have, have kind of sat down and they've kind of given us two major roles for elders in Acts 6-4. One is the ministry of the word which I think is probably what most of us think about when we think about the role of a pastor, an elder, teaching, uh, preaching, uh, leading according to what God's Word says is right. Like that's, that's pretty normal for most of us. But it says that second one is the ministry of prayer. The ministry of prayer. So in this passage right here, it's talking about you know praying, uh, the elders praying over somebody that's sick. But again, James is, is kind of trying to get this idea across that. In all situations, prayer is, is, is needed I don't think that we should be taking from this that James is saying, hey, go to the elders and pray because, you know, their prayers are heard like twice as loud as everybody else's, right? The idea is that God loves his people. God loves the people he sent his son to die for, and he has taken great care as he set up his church and how he's organized it and the roles that he's established and for you guys, it should be extremely encouraging that God has specifically planned it in such a way that it is somebody's job to be praying for you. It's somebody's job to be bearing your spiritual concerns and your physical needs. It is somebody's job to be going through trials of all kinds with you. God's established it in such a way that there's people in his church who, who are to be looking over things specifically like the word and prayer. And that's something to take advantage of to go to your elders, to go to your pastors and say, here's something that I'm dealing with, here's something I'm struggling with. Help me see how this aligns with God's word and also just pray with me about it. Take this before God. Uh, in this passage, right, it says that we should be taking this to the elders and they should be praying over us and um, that they should be anointing us with oil in the name of the Lord. And that, that's kind of strange 
maybe for some of us. That's not something that happens in our everyday lives. Uh, so that's kind of a difficult thing to interpret, and there's a lot of people in, who write commentaries and study these things who interpret it different ways. Uh, but the most clear way that, that it kind of seems to come across is that in Scripture, oil is something that's kind of used uh, to signify something. It, it's kind of used as a symbol. In the Old Testament, we see it a lot. As it's, it's used as a symbol to show that something is set apart as honored and is set apart for the service and direction of God's will. We see that a lot of times in the Old Testament with kind of like the ritual kind of laws. We see it in Psalms. Psalm 23 talks about it. You know that famous Psalm where David talks about God anointing his head with oil. It's this idea that, that something is set apart for God's special concern and care and his love. The idea here is that somebody's going before the elders, bringing their concerns before them, and they're pouring their love over them, praying with them, bringing those cares before God, showing that this person is set apart, a child of God, sharing in that inheritance with Christ. And it's a very very blessed thing. Somebody is carrying those concerns with that person. That's how God set up the church. That's how God set up the church for all of us. This is supposed to be a place where we're not spiritual lone rangers going through this alone, but instead we're taking on the concerns of other people in our congregation and sharing in those things so that we can build each other up together. We see that in verse 16 because it's not just that the elders should be praying for people, it's that we should all be praying with one another bearing those burdens. Verse 16 says, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. That may make us uncomfortable sometimes because for a lot of us, church is a place where we're supposed to look like we have it all together. Maybe the last person we want knowing about our sins is the person in the pew next to us. But that's, that's, that's pride and that's a sin that's kind of Satan has let kind of steal into our hearts so that we're really not living as, as God has directed the church to live. We're supposed to be bearing these guilts, these sins with one another. Again, He's talking about things like, like illness, talking about things that are out of our control. We should be bearing that, that, that thing with other people. He's talking about things like sins, things that, that maybe we've stepped into on our own. That should be bared with other people. Talking about prayers and just bringing these things before God that's supposed to be done with other people in the church. It's your job, it's your duty to be praying for the people in the pews around you right now. The Bible makes that clear. And, and, you know, as we've kind of gone through this passage, we can already see that there's some strange things, you know, we're trying to understand things like oil and, and, and praying with elders. And, and, and I know that it talks about things like, uh, you know, the relationship between sin and confession and illness. And that also may kind of throw us off and, and not to spend too much time there. Um, we know that the Bible has places where it says, you know, there's times where sin and illness can be related. Uh, in 1 Corinthians, uh, we see that Paul is writing to a church who has really failed to take the Lord's Supper as they should. They're doing it very selfishly. They're doing it without any concern for God. And, and Paul very explicitly tells them, um, hey, some of you are becoming sick and even dying because you have no regard for the things of God. So we see that the Bible certainly has a category where the, God can use that as, as a means of discipline for his people. Uh, but we also see that there's places in Scripture where people wrongly accuse people of being ill because they must have sinned, right? We see that with Job's friends. Job's friends assume that all these terrible things must have gone on him because he must have done something wrong. But we, the readers of the story, can kind of tell that's not what's going on. So we got to be careful when we approach things like that. Um, again, the gist of the passage here is no matter what's going on, whether it's sin, whether it's illness, whether it's something that, that we've stepped into ourselves, whether it's something that we can't control, whether it's persecution, whether it's oppression, whatever it is, 
All these things are to be bared among the members of a congregation with each other, taking those things into prayer for one another. Do we see that? Do we see that in the text? Do we see that that's our duty as church members for other people we've been in the congregation with? I don't think that's probably a shocking thing to say, but I think that's probably something that many of us forget to do pretty frequently, to be praying for other people that we're church members with to be bearing some of the, the, the struggles, the trials, the weight of these things, and to bring it before God. That's something that we are commanded to do. It's a part of our job description as church members, every one of us. So why does James tell us we need to be doing this? He tells us on in verse 16. So let's continue going on through this passage. I'm gonna, I know we've already read the first part of this verse, but I'll read it again starting in verse 16. It says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. Elijah was a human being as we were, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the land. And then he prayed again, and the sky gave rain, and the land produced its fruit. So why does James tell us we're supposed to be praying with and for other believers, supposed to be praying in all circumstances for ourselves as well, but especially for other believers? Why does he tell us this is important? Because it works. Because it's powerful. He says the, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful in its effect. The righteous person here, the Bible tells us that we know no one is righteous, no, not one, right? We have all failed to live up to God's standard. We are all sinners. None of us are as good as we like to put on our face many times. But the Bible also tells us that the Christian is a righteous man. Why? Not because of what we've done, but because of what Christ has done for us. When Jesus Christ died on the cross for us, He took our sins on Himself. He paid the price that we should have paid. But there's also another switch that happens in that, right? He gave us what He earned. In all His years on this earth, Jesus Christ never sinned, and that perfect life was also given to us. We have got the righteousness of Christ applied to our lives. So He died for our sin, taking on what we deserve, and He gave us what He earned in a righteous life. And so now when God looks at us, when God looks at you, the Christian, the believer, He doesn't see all the sins and the things that are on in your life. He sees His Son. He sees Jesus. So the prayer that's powerful is not offered by the super spiritual person or the best among us. The prayer that's powerful is offered by the righteous person that's righteous in Jesus Christ, the Christian. The power of your prayer, you know, there's certain things in Scripture where, where the Bible tells us that there's certain things that's in our lives, in our daily lives, that can hinder our prayers, right? Um, but the power in our prayer is not really as much about us as it is about the one that we're praying to. And we can see that from the example that James gives us, right? He starts talking about the prophet Elijah. Now, Elijah was a very famous prophet. Elijah was a very godly man, for sure. Um, but James's emphasis here is Elijah was a man like us. Elijah was a human being, right? He was, he was a person with his sin and his, and his faults. He was somebody that got hungry and got scared and got tired. He was somebody that was going through this, this walk just like us. God blessed him in magnificent ways. But what James is talking about is the story coming out of uh, 1 Kings like 17 and 18, where Elijah is, is the prophet uh, during a really tough time in the nation. They're evil kings. The prophets of God are being wiped out. God's judgment is coming down on the nation. And... Elijah is simply there doing the will of God. Elijah prays, and it says that it didn't rain for three and a half years, and he prayed again, and it rained again. Think about that. A man like we, like, like we are, a man like us, prayed, and it literally changed the weather for years. 
James says, a man like you and I prayed, and it had regional, global effects. Again, James's emphasis isn't that, that this happened because Elijah was so great. It's a man like us. He prayed and great things happened because that's what God does. We, we sometimes separate the God that created the heavens and the earth and the God that we read about in Genesis from the God that we talk to in our daily lives and we pray to when we bring our daily struggles. That, that, that's the same person. That's the same person that we go to that is able to do these magnificent things and he hears us in prayer and those prayers are powerful. That's why we're commanded to be praying for other people in our congregation. That's why we're told we're supposed to be doing this consistently, bearing those burdens with one another because if we do this, it works. It bears results. It has effects in the lives of those in the pews around you. It's meaningful. Prayer has great power in its working because we're praying to an awesome and mighty God. But the reality is that for many of us, we see that in Scripture and we hear it and and we believe it to an extent. But we say, God, where is that in my life? I know that I can say, I can, I can read this and I can, I can look at it and I can say, God, I trust everything that's in your word. And I know that what you say here is true 100% of the time, all the time. I know that you're good and I know that you're holy. But honestly, God, I've prayed for things less, you know, not near as big as this. And I've been praying for them for years. And where is that? Where is this thing that I've been bringing before to you? Is, is this my fault that it hasn't been answered? Why, why are the things that I'm bringing to you that I care so deeply about that are so important, good things that I'm asking for, why, why can Elijah, Elijah see it not rain for three years, but I can't see this? That's a real question. And that's a hard thing. Think about the way that kids think about God. Think about the way you thought about God when you were a kid, right? Like you tell a kid that if they pray for something, it'll happen, not a doubt in their mind, right? You say, pray for this and God will take care of it. They don't have a question. They're going to pray for it and it's going to be good. Uh, no, no stress there. I remember being a kid and uh, my dad played on like church league softball teams, right? He played for our church league softball team and we would go to the game sometimes. And I remember I was pretty young and, you know, we sat down before the game and we prayed, Pray God, I pray, God, I pray that my dad wins this softball game. I pray that our church wins the game. And let me tell you, I was confident. We were going to win that game. Why? Because I prayed about it. God says if we ask for anything in his name, we'll get it. I prayed about it. I prayed my dad would win the softball game, and I was sure that we would. You know what happened? It didn't. Right? And that floored me. Because... That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says if I pray for something and I ask him for God's name, that, that it'll happen, right? And, and I remember being angry about it. And I said, Mom, we prayed about this, and they lost. What happened? And she said something um, that I still remember to this day, something that totally demolished the way I looked at prayer and, and threw me off. She said this very deep statement. She said, well, son, maybe they prayed too. That threw me all off, right? I mean, for a minute, I'm like, okay, well, I guess, I guess this is a church softball league. They're Christians too, right? So if God tells me if I pray for something and ask for it, that I'll get it. And if he tells them the same thing, it's true for them too. But if, what if I ask is different from what they ask? Then, then is God confused? And then, you know, it just, 
And I've learned something pretty, pretty quickly, that if your entire theology of prayer can be demolished, if a Christian somewhere else on the other side of the city asks for the exact opposite thing, you've probably got a hole in what you're thinking about prayer life, right? So, so what's my point? My point is, is that, that we grow up and, and we stop thinking about things like kids think about them, and, and we think that we've got this greater perspective on what all's going on. But the reality is that when we pray about things, especially things that are emotionally difficult on us, things that are, are bearing down on our lives, that weigh on us so much, when we bring these things before God, somewhere in our head, we can still assume that we're understanding the whole picture. Just like as a kid, it was so simple to think, I prayed for this. God says if I pray for this, it'll happen. In our head, we can make it a little bit deeper, and we can say God says if I ask for anything in his will, that, that he'll do it, and that if it's good, if it's according to his plan, that, that those things will happen. And, and this, is, this seems good, and, and I don't know why this would be apart from God's plan, so why didn't it happen? And, and the reality is we just don't know. We just don't know near as much as we think we do. We just don't understand situations like God does. We can't see the whole picture, even though we think we can, even though we can see so much of it, even though it bears down on our lives so much. We just simply don't know like God knows. So, so what does the text tell us? What, what is the Bible telling us here? What is James saying when he's saying that, that if we pray in faith that he will hear us and he'll heal the sick person? What does verse 15 say? Verse 15 says, the prayer of faith will save the sick person. Is this saying that, that if we just believe enough when we pray, that, that it'll automatically happen? Or on the flip side of that, if, if we pray for something that doesn't happen, it's because I didn't believe enough. No, that's, that's not what it's saying. Just like our prayers are not powerful because we're powerful, but we're praying to a powerful God, the prayer of faith is not about us as much as it is about the one that we have faith in. The prayer of faith has faith that God is good in all things. The prayer of faith has faith that God's plan is perfect at all times. The prayer of faith says that I know that God knows all things. And the prayer of faith also says that I know that the Bible says that I don't. I don't know. That my, my understanding is imperfect and my plan is never as well thought out as his and that I am not as good as God. And if, even with all my understanding and, and all that's going on in my heart, if I don't get it, at the end of the day, the prayer of faith says, God, if there is a difference between what I call good and you call good, no matter how confusing it is, I want to side with what you say is good. God, I want this thing desperately. And God, this seems good. And God, in every way I look at this, in every way that it turns, this is what seems right to me. But God, I don't know everything. And at the end of the day, if there's a difference between what you say is good and what I say is good, Father, the prayer of faith says that I trust what you say is good. The Bible says that if we ask anything according to His will, 1 John five fourteen says, if we ask anything according to His will, we'll receive it. And we don't always know what that will is. That's the hard part when we pray. We don't always know what that will is. We can honestly say, God, here's what's going on in my life. Here's what, here's what I'm struggling with. God, here's what this other person in my congregation is struggling with. I don't know what your will is. I think this may be it. I'm asking you for it. But at the end of the day, I'm really asking you to do what you know is good. I'm asking you to do your will. Because I know that's going to bring the greatest results. Because I know that's what's right. That's what the prayer of faith is. That's the prayer that has power. That's the prayer that changes the weather. That's the prayer that James is teaching us about today. The prayer that should be applied to other people around us. 
That's the prayer that we have a duty to bring on other people in our churches. So that's what James is saying in that passage, right? That first off, we have a duty to pray for other people with faith in God to enter in their lives and to take on this thing with them. And James goes on and brings us to our second job in this description, right? Our second job is that we should be holding each other accountable. And that, that's a little bit more hard. So let's read verses 19 and 20. It says, My brothers and sisters, if any among you strays from the truth and someone turns him back, let that person know that whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. So what's our second job? Our second job is to be looking out for the faith of other people in our churches. To be looking out to make sure that their faith is according to what the Bible says is right, right? So this is applied in two different ways. This is about what we believe, what we believe to be true about God, about who Jesus is, about what the gospel is, about what we should be holding to in, in our everyday lives, like, like our, our, our thoughts. We should be assuming that people in our churches are basing that off Scripture, and we should be holding them accountable to that, to what God's Word says is good. And the flip side of that is, is that we should also be looking at how that's worked out in their lives. Sin and, and other things like that, how that's being played out practically. This also is an essential part of our job description. It's expected of people in His church, which can make us very uncomfortable, right? That that may play on a little bit of the freedom that we like to have, and that, 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 may, that may play on a little bit of the boundaries that we like to draw between people. And this is hard, and this passage is hard, and it's hard to understand. This passage is talking about people who are among us, and, and it's our job to what save their soul from death. What's this saying, right? So, so first, I want us to see that, that while this is talking about people in our churches, and it's saying that... that People's souls are in dangers of death, right? I want us to see that this is not saying that, that people are like in danger of losing their salvation, right? It's not talking about people who are Christians, truly believers, who have messed up in some way, and now they're going back, like they're on their way to hell, and it's our job to yank them back. Uh, that, that's not really what this is, is talking about, but I think this is a good place to start explaining this passage, right? The Bible tells us that if we truly know Jesus Christ, if we have an active relationship with us, if He has saved us, if His work has been applied to our lives, then we are His forever. We are always, always His. There is no losing that. There is no throwing that away. If we belong to Him, if we've ever truly had a relationship with Jesus and known Him and walked with Him, then we belong to Him. But the Bible also clearly tells us that only those who endure in the faith to the end are those who are saved. That's all throughout the Bible, all throughout the New Testament, that those who endure to the end are those who are saved. So, so how do these two things work together? Well, the logical conclusion is that if God makes sure that all those who are saved remain saved, He ensures those who are saved will endure to the end. How does He do that? He does that by using other people in our congregations to encourage us, to build us up, to walk with us, we are God's children, and, and God has set up the church in such an awesome way, such an intricate way, that He chooses to use us to do big jobs. That's an awesome responsibility on our shoulders. But it's one that God empowers. It's one that God sees through. It's one that God enacts, because those who are His children are His children, and they always will be. That's both encouraging and, and a little bit scary too, right? Because that means 
We have work to do. There's things we're expected to do. And the flip side of this is we want to take the text seriously, and we want to see that, that the Bible does tell us that, that there are people who are among us, straying from the truth, and who are in real danger of, of their souls being separated from Him. That's what the text makes very obvious. And, and here's, here's the thing. The Bible tells us that there are those who sit in churches every Sunday who come and who go through the motions, but who aren't really His, who don't know Him, who don't have a relationship with Christ. Maybe they've, they've, they've shown up to the right place, and, and maybe they've gone to the right events, and maybe they've worked in the right ways, but those aren't what saves us, right? What saves us is a relationship with Jesus Christ. What saves us is His death on the cross and believing in Him. The radical thing here is what James is calling us to do is evangelize our churches. That's tough. The fact of the matter is, is that when we're here, we, we, don't, we don't know everything that's going on in everybody's lives around us, even if we're doing this like we're supposed to. And the fact of the matter is, we don't, we're not going to be able to, to know all the time who will endure to the end, who, who's, who's saved, who's, who's God's child. We don't always know these things. What we do know is that for us, God's laid an awesome responsibility at our feet. To bear the burdens of those in our congregation, to love them, to walk with them, to pray with them, to go through all these things together, and to also hold them accountable. So, as we look at this passage, um, applying it in some ways is not super difficult, right? What are we supposed to do? You're supposed to be praying for the people in the church around you, you're supposed to be looking at these people in the pews next to you and saying, hey, what's going on in your life? What, what's God doing with you right now? What, what are the struggles that you're dealing with in a very physical, basic way? What's the things that you're, you're wrestling with spiritually? What's going on? How can I be praying for you? How can I shoulder this thing with you? If you want to know how to apply that, that's pretty easy. As you walk out the door today, ask somebody, right? The second one may be a little bit more difficult to apply sometimes. How do we hold each other accountable? How do we, you know, people that we may have been going to church with for 10, 20, 30 years, how do we if we don't have that relationship with them now, how do we set that up? Well, there's a very important prerequisite uh, to both of these things. There's a prerequisite to being a part of God's church. To want to see somebody through to heaven, you've got to love them. You have to love them. What does Jesus say is the mark of his disciples? What does he say sets us apart from the world? In John 13, 35, he says, By this, all people will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. When you really love somebody, when you've walked through those things with them, when you've bared some of the burdens that have been placed in their lives, when you've sat down and prayed with them, when you've confessed sins with them, when you've been open and honest with them, when you've walked through the things, especially that we see in the first part of this chapter, and then somebody comes and says to you, brother or sister, hey, look, I, I, I see this thing that's going on in your life, and I just got to be honest with you, this isn't going to lead to anything good for you. 
this doesn't look to be what God's Word says is good. You're, you're living apart from what this thing says we should be doing as Christians. All that's going to do is take you to a place that you don't want to go. It's just going to harm you. It's just going to harm your walk. When that prerequisite of somebody really loving you comes first, that second conversation becomes a lot more meaningful, doesn't it? That holds some weight. Maybe here's a good test for you, right? If, if, if you saw somebody in this room, maybe somebody that you've known 20, 10, 20, 30 years, if you saw them out doing something openly sinning, would you feel you were overstepping your place to talk to them about it in love? You know what? Actually, better, maybe a better question is, let's, let's flip that. If somebody in this room, anybody in this room, anybody that you've been a church member with for a long time, anybody that you've entered into this covenant with, if they saw you doing something that you shouldn't be doing, and they came and spoke to you in love, and they did it in the right way, would you feel that they were out of place? Would you feel that they were overstepping their bounds? Because if so, that's probably an indication, not just that they're overstepping their bounds, but, but probably that the relationship that you have with other people in your church, maybe people that you've known for a very long time, isn't quite where it should be. Our job as people in the church is to love one another, bury, uh, bear uh, these, these issues with one another, whether that's sickness, whether that's, that's oppression, whether that's persecution. Again, James is, is trying to apply this as broadly as possible the idea is simply that as church members, we're supposed to love one another, to walk through the difficulties of life with one another, and sometimes slap each other in the back of the head when it makes sense, right? I would, I'm telling you guys, I wish, there's times in my life where I wish there was somebody there to slap me in the back of the head. And you know who probably who I have to blame that there wasn't? Probably myself. We've got a community. We've got people around us who are like-minded, of the same worldview based on Scripture. Take advantage of it. Ask yourself as you look around, do I love these people like Jesus loves them? Do I love these people like Jesus loves me? Let's pray. Father God, um, as we kind of walk through this, this book of James and as we talk about these things, Father, sometimes James says things that are difficult and James says things that we don't want to talk about and James says things that are hard. And Father, we know that really all we can do is just to walk through uh, your word. All we can do is, is just to, to talk about what Scripture talks about, to talk about the passage that Scripture is, is bringing before us today and, and to see how you can apply it to our lives. And God, sometimes how to apply that is sometimes easy, and, and sometimes it's confusing, and sometimes it's hard, but God, just give us the strength to apply things in our lives um, in the way that you want us to apply it. Father, um, I pray that you help me do this. I pray that you help me to, to rely on people around me, to trust people, to, to open up to people, to, to, to want and learn and know and love more about the people that I'm, I'm in my church with. Um, it's very easy to stay distant sometimes, God, but I pray that, that you, you just help us to not, in your spirit, move us so that we don't. Help us to love one another. Help us to love you. 
And help us just be working day by day as we slowly inch towards glorification and the sanctification process that you brought us through. Help us just to look more towards Jesus. Father, we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for joining us online. Leeway Baptist Church exists to glorify God by making disciples of all nations. For more information about us and our ministry, please visit us at www.leewoodbaptist.com.